Welcome back to another episode of the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritschner, Rick Broering with you. And Rick, it's been 17 days since we did the emergency podcast with Dan after Sean Miller got hired. Since then, Xavier has won a national championship, the NIT. They went to Madison Square Garden. They got it done. Sean Miller has now taken over the team as the head coach. He's taken over everything as Jonas Hayes has also departed for Georgia State. We have coaching topics. We have the NIT. We have portal news. Everything else should be a loaded episode of this podcast. So, Rick, let's jump right into it now and get into some coaching news. We'll start off with that before the NIT and then some more of the portal uh, and everything else. The coaching news, the latest just broke a couple of hours ago, was that Jonas Hayes is going to be taking the head job down at Georgia State. There was a lot of discussion about whether he was going to take that or maybe whether he was going to come back to Xavier to potentially be the associate under Sean Miller. And you could look at Jonas and say, okay, he'll come back to Xavier. And for the games that Sean will inevitably be suspended for, likely be suspended for next season, Jonas would be the associate head coach, get some more head coaching experience at the high major level, or does he take the Georgia State job? Well, he elects to go back home down to Georgia State, and uh, that just got finalized a couple hours ago. So, Rick, what are you hearing about that and how that all went down? And if anything about Jonas's decision making or what he was looking for in that and, and his decision to go back down home, really, to Georgia State? Yeah, we've been talking about it on the message board all all week, and I think this is a pretty good starting spot for Jonas Hayes in his career. I talked about a lot of people kept mentioning, well, what a great opportunity if he does come back. To, if Sean might get suspended, then he'll have the opportunity to show he can be a head coach for a few more games yeah. in the middle of a season or whatever. I don't think people understand. That really doesn't do much for his well, reputation. Like, this was striking while the iron was hot. People notice you at the end of a season when everyone's changing jobs and the coaching carousel is in full rotation and you win a quote-unquote championship at the end of the year like that. That's how you raise your stock. That's something people are going to remember. That's something that raises your profile as a coaching prospect. Not three games in the non-conference yeah. schedule next year. I mean, by the time people are actually making a hire next spring, no one's going to remember his three non-conference wins. Yeah, and inevitably, that along those lines, inevitably, th there's really nowhere you can go coaching as an interim at Xavier after going 4-0 in a postseason and winning a, a championship. If you, if you have – I say Sean will inevitably get suspended. I don't see any way that Sean doesn't get a suspension at this point, but it could very well just be two games. So Jonas comes back, he coaches two games, which – if it happens in the non-conference season could be two buy games. And that's the entire reason why he comes back as opposed to taking a head coaching job. Now, I just don't think that makes sense. And I think this is a good decision for Jonas in his head coaching career. You look at Ron Hunter, you look at Rob Lanier, the last few coaches at Georgia state had great success there. It's a conference that's easy to win in. He's going to make good money, a nice bump up from what he was getting at Xavier. Like I, I saw a lot of people that said after the NIT run, couldn't he get a, bigger job or quote unquote better job. I don't think people realize like a lot of when you start your career is finding a job you can win at finding a job. You can prove that you're going to be a good head coach at like, that's the best place to start at going to South Carolina or going to Clemson or going to Georgia tech. I don't know that those are necessarily better jobs. Those are jobs where your career go to die. 
And if it's the first job you're starting at, well, what's the first thing people are going to say about you if you can't get it done if you use there? Oh, he's a recruiter. He was just an assistant coach. So it's like, yeah. to me, I would much rather have this opportunity where you're going somewhere where you have a good opportunity to win. You can prove yourself first. And then you take your swing at the high major level in three or four years after you've proven yourself, which I have no doubt Jonas will do. I think he will crush it at Georgia State. I think it was a great opportunity for him. You can get he and his brother working their backyard for recruits and the the fertile Georgia recruiting grounds. I think that's going to be a, a great setup. What What is the status with his brother? I thought there was some sort of a clause that said him and his brother couldn't be on the staff at the same time. I thought yeah. there was some sort of... I, I is, find is that, that very it? hard. I find it very hard to believe Georgia State is hiring Jonas and not keeping Jarvis on staff. Like, all that stuff, people... Yeah. We've got a bunch of lawyers on our board that, like, worry about a bunch of minutia that no one else talks about. So, I'll let them handle that. I have. I find it very hard to believe Jarvis won't be on his staff. Yeah, okay. Um, and as far as the Georgia State God job goes... How does that job stack up in in that area? You, you mentioned a couple of the previous coaches and how they've won. Obviously, we know uh, Hunter and the job he did. Xavier beat them uh, a few years ago in the NCAA tournament. So some Xavier fans listening to this probably a little familiar with him if they followed his career at all after that. But how does that job stack up, Rick, at, at the mid-major level for Jonas to go and take this on in recruiting in that southern area? I mean, I don't have a ranking, you know, I don't know, what, fit, yeah. like top 12, I have no idea. You know, I, I don't yeah. know. It's a good job. It's a good job. It's yeah. a job you can win at, which I think is the important thing. You know, I, Rob Lanier made uh, 500K, I think, somewhere around there Yeah. Uh, while he's coaching there. I think Jonas was making a little over 300K at Xavier. So, again, he's getting a little bit of a, I mean, not you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars extra to most of us would be a nice pay increase, especially when you talk about <laughs> it's that high of a percentage of your salary. But, um, yeah, it's not – He's not making like over a million dollars or anything. There are certainly some bigger jobs out there, uh, but I think this was a really good spot for him to start out at, and I think he'll do really well there. And it's not a mid-major where people go to die. I think that's the the big thing too. It's not he's not taking some major downgrade to go somewhere. This is a place where he can go and win. So good for Jonas to be able to take this and to set himself up. And now in the last couple of years, that's Ben Johnson leaving Xavier's staff to go take over the job at Minnesota. And Jonas Hayes leaving the staff to go and take over the job at Georgia State. Some good yeah. looks for Xavier to have a couple guys take those jobs. Well, in four years, Travis Steele uh, developed a coaching tree of two already. So, yeah, I mean, that's in all <laughs> seriousness, that's pretty impressive. I think what that tells you is Travis did a heck of a job of when he ca came in here, getting two big time assistant coaches to join his staff. I mean, when he yeah. was able to pull Ben Johnson away and Jonas Hayes away from their alma maters and get them to Xavier. Those were impressive hires because people knew this was coming, especially for Jonas. And people have been talking about Jonas potentially being the next head coach at Georgia since before he ever came to Xavier as an assistant coach. And with Ben, the whole Minnesota thing kind of happened quickly. I, I don't think people were expecting that as much when he originally came to Xavier. But again, for him to get the head coaching job in the Big Ten at his alma mater, pretty impressive stuff. So that Xavier had a good staff in place. It didn't work out for them, but I think this kind of goes to show you that Travis Steele did a good job of putting his staff together. And speaking of Travis Steele, he turns around real quick and gets hired by Miami. Look, what a wild 20 days. And I recapped it a little bit in that video that I put on Twitter, but Xavier and Travis part ways. Jonas now has a head coaching job. Sean Miller gets hired at uh, Xavier. And oh, by the way, 
when Sean and Travis were getting hired independently, Sean and Xavier, Travis at Miami, they were still playing basketball games. What, what a crazy 20 days for this program. Writing final four matchup articles for the NIT when like the whole basketball world is kind of coming to an end. We've got news going off everywhere around the Xavier program. And yet it's like, hey, what's St. Bonaventure's point guard looking like this year? <laughs> was just an amazing moment in my career of covering sports. Like I, I really couldn't believe I was writing a St. Bonaventure matchups article on that Monday night before the, the Tuesday night semifinal game. It was just like, what the hell is going on right now? How is this the longest I've ever worked into a season? This is the team that I'm covering deep into March and, and now April. Uh, it just, it, it made absolutely no sense. But it's been a crazy 20, 20 days. I mean, it really has. And you mentioned Travis taking the Miami job. I think as soon as Miami came open, that made a ton of sense for him. The biggest puzzle piece for him was finding a way to continue coaching while also remaining in this area, not having to uproot his family. You really couldn't find much better of a situation. I know a lot of people will talk about Miami's a really hard job. They've fallen off the map there in the Mac. It's a tough place to win. You don't have good facilities. You don't have fan support right now. And the administration doesn't like to work with you. All of that stuff is true. I agree with that. I'll also say... Miami has by far the best campus in the MAC. They are, I'm pretty certain, the best academic institution in the MAC. There, there are some things to sell. I mean, it is a beautiful campus. You can get kids to go there. And the type of guys that Travis Steele can recruit from the Indiana, Ohio, Northern Kentucky area, just in general, the type of guys you need to get to Oxford, that's Travis Steele's wheelhouse. If, if he goes and gets like, you know, there's one or two guys every year in the GCL that are going to go high major. And then there's probably like three more that could play at Miami's level. He's going to go get those guys. He's going to get the best kid from Northern Kentucky that can play at that level. He's going to recruit really well to Miami, I think. And I, I yes, it's a very difficult job. I also think the expectations are very low right now there. They'll give him some time to get settled in. And with his experience over the last four years in the Big East, I think he's going to do really well there. You're forgetting the most important recruit, Rick. Am I? The guy from the Miami branch campus that introduced himself <laughs> is the first question. Incredible moment. An incredible moment during Travis's press conference. Uh, yeah, what is it's Hamilton. Um, I don't know. Miami Hamilton is the campus. Yeah, I have the video. Yeah. Was it Miami Hamilton? Yeah, I think that's either what it's way. Called, yeah. I, either way. One, I want to know how he was in that press conference. Well, first and two, of all, their SID just hands it to that guy on the first question. It's like that, that's what? what I was gonna say. That was my number two. Yeah, you know, in in our press conference, we have a little a little decorum there. It's like it used to be Shannon Russell asked every first question. She's there every day as the daily beat writer for the Enquirer. Now that has been passed on to Adam Baum. He he always starts off our press conferences. How about Miami? Just a lawless ruleless society just hand off the microphones to any juco guy that any juco <laughs> basketball player that walks into the new head coaching introduction press conference I, that was an um, amazing moment i mean i'm watching i'm like oh travis did a nice job you know that's he said sounds good and then they're like we'll take questions hand it off and the first question's like i don't really have a question it's more of a i just want to introduce myself <laughs> it's i mean a bold move by that kid 
I'll give him credit. Travis's answer was great. He handled it perfectly saying, yeah, uh, let's not pick up a violation on my first day. It's a dead period. But yeah. But to one, how he got in that press conference and two, how he got the microphone for the first question. How, well, I'm how surpri- both of those things happen. I'm not surprised he got in there. I mean, because you always see like players and friends of fail, like introductory press conferences, especially when you don't have like what Xavier did, where there's like a big pep rally for Sean beforehand. And then you go yeah. into a press conference. If it's all one thing, you know, there's going to be like big donors in the room. There could be some yeah. former players, current players, whatever. So like, it's always a little bit of a, a mismatch on a, an introductory press conference, but normally, you know who the guy is when you're handing off the mic for the first question. <laughs> yeah. Like that room just seems so small and intimate to me in that little theater that they were in or whatever it was that it felt like if you were in that room and somebody was asking a question or making a statement, the SID probably would have known who that was. Instead, we have this guy, I think his name was King. I don't want to swear on that, but what a year for King between King McClure and, and whoever this, I think his name was King either way. What a move. I don't, we couldn't, we couldn't do this uh, podcast without, are you on this right now? Uh, I'm I try- have the video. Uh, well, I was trying to look to see Miami King Goss. I mean, that's there it be is. him, right? King Goss. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I'm looking up number gonna, 10. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. He's got some knee pads and uh, a good haircut. <laughs> he looks like he could be a player. He's a 6'2 guard from Milton U- or uh, from Twinsburg. 6'3 guard from Twinsburg. So we'll wait to see if King Goss makes the roster as maybe a walk-on. But yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it was a great moment. He's just like, you talked about loving basketball. I love basketball. I'm not. A- and then the best part is, I'm not asking for an opportunity. I'm just asking for an opportunity to meet you. <laughs> And, and develop a relationship with you. So, uh, yeah, a crazy introductory press conference moment for Travis Steele. First question. I mean, that had to be the most jarring, like, not in the Big East, not at Xavier moment for him. Yes. Right off the bat. First that was question the first was yeah. guy asking to, to get on the roster. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, all right. Let's talk a little bit about the staff now. Shout out, King. C- coming to Xavier. <laughs> with Jonas Hayes leaving, what we're going to see next year. And I think one thing that's become pretty clear at this point is that Dante Jackson looks to be staying. We've been saying that the whole time, but when you have both his recruits back in the fold and just the way things are being said and talked about, seems very obvious that Dante is going to be coming back. Yeah, Dante coming back. And then how about those two recruits coming back as well, like you said, to, to get those two commitments right off the bat, um, Big for him and big for the staff to keep those two guys. Now, obviously, you're waiting on Terrell Ward, but go ahead. Well, Dante is a guy who was really struggling to get his footing as an assistant coach when Travis Steele brought him on four years back. And I think a lot of people were, like, wondering, how is that going to go? And, I mean, let's just put it bluntly. Dante was kind of the cheaper piece to bring on so you could afford Ben Johnson and Jonas Hayes at $300,000 a pop. You know, each of those guys are getting paid really good money to get them here. So you have to go with a guy that doesn't have as much experience that really wants to be here in Dante. He picked a great time to blossom. I mean, for him to get two big time recruits in the same class, the year that there was going to be a coaching change really gave him some extra juice in this. And maybe Sean would have liked Dante enough as a former player and wanted to keep him around anyway, but there is no doubt 
that Dante came into this offseason where there was going to be a major decision made, and he had some leverage going to have two recruits right now. And just in general, being around the program, you can tell that Dante has really started to come into his own over the last two seasons, I would say, in terms of his confidence interacting with players on the court and just as a coach and a recruiter. I think you've really seen a change in him, and it, it blossomed at the perfect time for him, and everything kind of lined up. I think Xavier fans are probably happy that Dante is staying. It's pretty cool to see a former player succeed the way he has. And I think he's going to be an important part of the staff going forward. He's made serious inroads in that New York, New Jersey recruiting area and in that New England prep school conference, which is like, the, yeah. it's called the NEPSAC. It is the most talented recruiting area that you can possibly be involved in. I mean, that's where all the top prep players go. And there's one year I went to the, but they have a, a tournament called the Hoop Hall classic which is up in massachusetts and it was the year there was jalen reynolds was committed to xavier was playing in that tournament samaje Kristen was on the same team with jalen reynolds in that tournament miles davis was with notre dame prep in that tournament and james farr was with mci prep in that tournament all four of them in the same tournament playing the same prep school deal up there so it is like that's where dante has got most of his recruiting efforts focused right now in addition to the regional area ohio kentucky indiana a little bit that he knows pretty well it's really served him well. He's doing a great job. Yeah, and they went and visited last week, Desmond Claude. They went up and visited him uh, at Putnam Academy while the team was in New York at the NIT. So that was a big step to then secure his commitment or his recommitment or his affirmation or whatever you want to call it, that he's coming back uh, and saying that he's going to be on the team. So, And that's big for Xavier, too. We'll get into it more later, but especially now looking for a stable point guard with Dewan Odom leaving. We'll get into that more after we talk about the NIT, but still that's a big commitment for Dante. And now Dante probably keeping his spot on the staff. Uh, have you heard anything about Danny Peters? Yeah, I do not think that Danny Peters is going to be back. Everything I've heard is that he'll, he, he will not be back on staff. So really I think Dante Jackson is kind of the guy, the lone guy coming back from what I've heard. Now, maybe that changes a little bit with Jonas leaving at, yeah, this is we're recording this literally within two hours after the Jonas news came down. Uh, we kind of expected it, but at the same time, I haven't talked to anybody else since that, hap that has happened. So I do not expect Danny Peters to be back on staff, but um, I can't say that with 100% certainty at this point. That being said, I think from what I've heard, there seems to be sort of two buckets right now that I'm hearing a lot of these assistant coach names fall into. One is and this would have been the, the Jonas Hayes this, bucket this is he stayed. Prospective assistant yeah, coaches, potential right? Potential guys that to could come be added yeah. to the staff for Sean Miller. Okay. Uh, Jonas Hayes would have fit in this bucket, which is guys with some head coaching experience. And, and Jonas doesn't really have that, but now that he was the interim guy and everyone was looking at him as kind of a, a head coach and waiting sort, he probably would have been the guy that was there in case the Sean Miller suspension is a little longer than we're thinking and you need someone to make that transition smoother I've heard multiple names of guys with some head coaching experience. I, I posted a Nuggets article on the board Monday uh, that had some of those names included. So if you want more details on specific names, you can check that out. But I think that's one route is looking at guys who have been a head coach before who can make that transition for Sean's suspension a little bit smoother. And, and also just obviously provide the valuable insight that a guy who has been through the ranks and, and been a head coach before brings – but the other thing that I've heard a little bit about, and it's something that interests me, is finding someone with international recruiting ties. And I've heard Sean wants to recruit the international game. He's done that really well at Arizona prior to coming here. 
that's something that I don't think a lot of schools do really well. Uh, you've obviously seen it benefit Gonzaga in huge ways. Arizona this year had a lot of international guys. One or two of those, I think, were Sean guys, and then the rest were brought in by Tommy Lloyd, who was the international guy for Gonzaga and helped them get to where they are at. So uh, you've seen some other schools do it, but th- that's kind of like the top rung of the ladder. I think there is an opportunity there for Xavier to to really make some inroads and increase their their level of recruiting, especially when you're in the Big East. We've talked about how difficult it's been for Xavier to get the top level of talent in the Big East, even as well as they've been recruiting by Xavier standards. It's tough to recruit at the Big East level because of what Villanova brings to the table. And you've still got some institutions with historical success on the recruiting trail that have continued to recruit pretty well. UConn's right back in that mix now, doing a good job on the recruiting trail. So I think that is a a big part of it for, for Xavier going forward. Yeah. And the international recruiting, Xavier hasn't really ever done too much international recruiting. I remember Chris Mack maybe potentially had looked at somebody a few years ago, but Xavier's, has Xavier really ever done much? There was the uh, failed Alexander Vesnikov experience uh, for, for Xavier. Um, yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here is definitely a focus on international recruiting, unlike anything Xavier's ever had. So if yeah. this comes through and they get a guy who has that as one of his main areas of emphasis on the recruiting trail, it's going to definitely be a different look recruiting-wise than Xavier's ever really seen. Yeah. The other One other note that I haven't really heard anybody bring up, but I think is kind of important to think about here is, when you think about Xavier's main recruiting area, I think a lot of people expect them to be strong in the Midwest. I mean, think about the most talented guys that they've brought in in the last however many years. Edmund Sumners from Michigan, Samaje Kristen from Cincinnati, Trayvon Blewett from Indianapolis, Paul Scruggs from Indianapolis. You know, most of these guys we're talking about here are Midwestern guys. Ohio, Indiana, you had some Kentucky guys during that time, Michigan guys during that time, Illinois they've recruited. All of that has been done with Travis Steele leading the way for the most part. He has been their strongest recruiter in the Midwest for the last decade when he was the assistant for Chris Mack and then as the head coach himself he was still doing a lot of hands-on recruiting in the Midwest they are now entering a phase where they are going to recruit the Midwest without Travis Steele I, I and think re- that and, re- and recruit against Travis Steele at some point yeah I mean it, not you know, directly but there's not like a lot Miami, of guys, but Travis is certainly going to recruit guys as Xavier's recruiting in theory, if Xavier's struggling to get recruits over Miami of Ohio, Miami, they've got yeah. bigger issues. Um, so I don't look at it as much that way as much as I do. Without Travis, you're really going to have to pick up your mid your Midwest recruiters. Like you felt pretty good before that Xavier would have a legit chance of going into Indiana and getting a big name kid, or if they're in on a, a guard early from Michigan, Travis has a chance at that guy. I don't know that you're going to feel the same way going forward. We just don't know that yet. And everyone likes Sean, but I don't think Sean has the same Midwestern ties exactly that Travis had. So I think it's a little bit more Northeast and now out West with his time spent in Arizona. So I I am interested to see how they continue recruiting this Midwestern area now that Travis is gone. I think that's going to be a big part of their plan going forward. And, and, you know, potentially even uh, we're, we're talking about a guy like Danny Peters that is, you know, he recruited, Indiana, Ohio a little bit. So that is potentially an area where he is a little bit stronger in. Maybe that that potentially gives him a second look. But from everything I've heard, I think we can expect two new assistants. 
Uh, and speaking of recruiting the Midwest, before we move on from coaching, how about Thad Mata going back to Butler? How about that hire? I so I got I was down on my phone, and about forty minutes after that, I checked my phone. And I saw the first thing and only thing I saw was somebody had sent me the link to the tweet from Butler and I clicked on it and I thought it was like an April Fool's at first. I thought for sure it was fake. And so I clicked on the link and the link didn't work. It was a dead link. And I was like, okay, somebody's pulling my leg here. And then I realized the link was just not working because the Wi-Fi was like screwed up where I was and it was real. And dad is back at Butler and Rick, if you had asked me how old Thad Mata was, I would have said upper 60s, just given how he looks and just not really hearing too much from him in the last four or five years. He's 54. Yeah. He looks like he's like 67. Yeah. Well, uh, and, he, and people have been talking about his medical health issues for a while now too to I think has really played a role in how old everyone thought he was everyone's like oh yeah he's at the end of his career because he's having health issues it's like that wasn't the case at all and he's been trying to get back in like he has wanted his name involved with other coaching jobs leading up to this so it, it wasn't a surprise that he was trying to get the job so much but I don't think anyone really saw him being hired I think that was a bit of a surprise and it's an interesting move by Butler. I mean, I think there's a lot of upside there. You, you, you know he can coach. So the question yeah. is, can he get past the negative recruiting from other schools saying, hey, he's not going to be there very long. He's got health issues. He's a, you know, they're, they're, they're grooming somebody else. He's not really going to be your head coach when you play there. That's what everyone was saying when he was at Ohio State those final years, is that he's not going to be the head coach much longer because of his physical health. And he struggled to recruit. I mean, that's just a fact of why he lost his job at Ohio State. So can he get past that now? Can he sell to people that, no, my health is fine now. I'm good to go. I'm going to be the head coach at Butler. And I would stand to think if Butler made this hire, they're not doing so with the idea that in two or three years, they're moving on from that. Ronald Norad or something like that. Yeah. You don't make this hire to get that money unless you think you've got a head coach. And I think they're very much in a similar position to Xavier, that you have a guy that at the point he is in his career and at the age he's at, he could very easily be your head coach for the next 10 to 15 years or more, assuming things work out well. So this is a very interesting hire and it's a very interesting time in the Big East in general. You looked at the coaching roster a year or two ago and you compare that to the coaching roster that you have across the conference right now. We don't know how this is all going to play out. Maybe these decisions won't work the way we think they are, but just off of name recognition and quote-unquote star power in the coaching ranks. It's been a major upgrade. Shaka Smart, Jay Wright, Greg McDermott, Sean Miller, Thad Mata. Patrick Ewing's a name, but he's not doing anything coaching-wise right now. You have Dan Hurley, Ed Cooley, Cooley, Shaheen Holloway now, Mike Anderson, Tony Stubblefield. Am I forgetting anybody? I think that's everybody. all the names I could think of. I I mean, that that is... quite a cast of characters in the big east now that's going to be coming through Cintas. and speaking of coming through Cintas, do you think thad mata gets the loudest boo that Cintas has ever given anybody or at least to an opposing coach coming in there because i would have to lean toward yes but maybe time heals all wounds there I would have to think this is going to create even more fire to the Butler-Xavier rivalry. I mean, I, I think yeah. fans were not happy with the way Thad left. 
And from everything I've heard, and I, I know he would never say this publicly. I know people were listening to the podcast he did with Redford and everything, and he says some nice things. But, like, everything I've heard, Thad has nothing nice to say about Xavier. Like, yeah. when other coaches are asking what he thinks about their decision when it comes to going to Xavier or staying at Xavier, leaving Xavier, all this stuff, I've heard that he is not a big fan of the place. So I don't think there's a lot of love lost there between either party. I, I think it's going to add something. I don't know. Yeah. I do too. I think it's a fiery hire and I think that it's going to do a lot for it. And it, Greg Doyle wrote an article in the Indy star about, um, about dad getting hired and, and where this puts him in the big East and everything like that, the details of it. And he was talking to your point about how Thad had wanted to get back into coaching. He spent that year at IU this year behind the scenes and he was more of an administrator in, in an administrative role. He wasn't on the bench. He wasn't an assistant coach but he was still living in Indianapolis and he was living across the street from Barry Collier, who is the Butler athletic director. So this entire time, it was this, I don't want to say behind the scenes working because Laval Jordan was there, but at wow. the same time, yeah. if dad Mott is living across the street from the athletic director, this, this wasn't maybe out of left field. I think it was a bit calculated. Yes. <laughs> I think that's fair yeah. to say. So, so that's uh, the coaching. Let's move on now to the NIT. Xavier was nationally invited. They win the NIT. Rick, you and I both picked Xavier to lose to Iona in the second round, and Xavier wins five straight games. They win the NIT. It's pretty crazy going to Ken Palm and seeing Xavier's page and seeing it green, ending green, right? I mean, like, yeah, well, they're of, still ranked like what in the 60s or something? Yeah. <laughs> Overall yeah, 50s whatever, or whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. Like they, yeah. And to our point that we've made on the broad or on the podcast here over the last however many weeks leading into the NCAA tournament, Xavier finished with one loss in the non conference 15 and one, 16. I think it was 15 and one in the non conference. There was just something I, I know that Vanderbilt and Florida and, and all of them aren't you know, top 20 Ken Palm teams like you'd seen the NCAA tournament, but still Xavier was, I think, I think the biggest thing to me about what happened during the games with Xavier was that there were so many times where Xavier could have easily given up. They could have folded. They could have said, look, we're done with this. We just want to move on. Some of these guys, maybe Dewan had already made his mind up that he wanted to transfer who knows, but if anybody like Dewan or anybody that comes out soon has said, Hey, I want to transfer. They could have easily just said, let's move on. But even in the games, when they were down, they were trailing. Weren't they losing a Vanderbilt by like nine or 10 points at one point? And I'll, I'll be pretty honest about the, a lot of the NIT was a blur for me. I don't, yeah. I don't remember a lot of specifics from these games. <laughs> <laughs> you you were so drunk on fandom you just couldn't remember anything <laughs> no i was i was worried about slightly more important things most of them were spent on the phone <laughs> if i'm being honest <laughs> yeah but but to me it was just a situation for xavier where so many times like it felt like all right this is it let's pack it up and move on let's get in the off season and they never quit even down at the half against texas a&m in the championship game and they just had a fight and and, it, and that was the weird thing to me i was sitting 20 feet i was sitting two feet from the court when uh, Jack Nungy uh, hit that game winning shot in the, in the championship game on Thursday night. And to me sitting there, it was a, such an opposite feeling to what I had in the Butler game 
uh, in the first round of the Big East tournament where I just kept feeling like, all right, what what's going to happen here? Is Xavier going to actually be able to do this? Are they are they really going to choke this away? It looks like they are. How are they going to screw this up? When Xavier was inbounding the ball with five seconds left, I was I was sitting there thinking to myself, they're going to win this game. I just don't know how they're going to do it, which was such a weird feeling five games separated. Well, and by the way, that's the exact same look the team had too. They went yeah. through that end of game stretch where they lost, you know, five in a row and seven of the or six of the last eight, whatever it was, in the regular season. And you're each game there was a, a point or two or three where you're like, Okay, how are how are they gonna get out of this? How are they gonna figure this out or screw it up? And each time they just couldn't get out of their own way. They would figure out a way to lose. And it felt very much like a team that either mentally just completely reset after Travis Steele's firing, or I mean, maybe in some ways it was just a relief for everybody. There was so much tension and everything in that locker room that once Travis Steele was fired, then it, it became a thing for all the players of like, all right, that you know, thing, things got tough around here. It was so tense and everybody was on edge. We lost our guy. Let's go play for Jonas now. Now we've got something else, you know, a, new, a renewed sense of energy or passion or whatever it was. But they definitely played like a group that just didn't have near the same amount of stress or tension on them. It's like everyone had just taken a deep sigh and said, "Let's play. Let, let's just yeah. let's just get back to playing basketball and quit. Let's erase the last month or two of, of negative thoughts." And it looked like a completely different team in terms of what actually stood out to me. I thought the biggest thing was the play of Colby Jones. I thought he was really good in this NIT. And the two things that we saw from a personnel or scheme standpoint is, one, he was playing as the four a lot. They weren't playing two bigs together throughout the NIT much at all. I think that opened up the offense for everybody and and also helped Colby out. And then two, after Paul went down with his torn ACL, Colby then became the backup point guard to Dwan Odom. And especially in the semifinals and finals, I thought he really impressed with initiating the offense, making plays for other guys. I thought him being forced into that role, whether it was Paul being out, so they just needed somebody to be more of a focal point of the offense, or it was actually putting the ball in Colby's hands and forcing him to make more decisions and and make more plays. Either way, it brought out the best in Colby and it brought out what we the team was missing from him most of the year, which is assertiveness. Yeah, we cl- clearly Jonas Hayes was motivating this team and getting them up and energized uh, to play these games. How did you think Jonas did X's and O's wise, Rick? I like it, look when you're coaching in that situation, and as Jonas said multiple times in interviews, we're a do what we do team. I'm not changing stuff here. Like we're, we're the same schemes and stuff that we've been all year. So I don't think X and O wise, I know all the fans, the expert fans have a lot of different opinions on how the offense was ran so much better and what they were doing differently and screens being set. That that's the one I've got to sit down with someone on the message board so they can show me the, all the screens that were being set differently. Cause there's like a big narrative going on with that. I keep watching film. I keep seeing the exact same stuff. Someone's going to have to break it down for me. But that being said, I think just the, the the playing a smaller lineup more often. And then also, like, let's face it. Everyone wants to make this like a weird thing that we can't talk about. But it's not, it's not taking shots at Paul Scruggs right now. It's at the end of the year, 
I think clearly the offense was getting bogged down with Paul trying to do too much. And that's not necessarily on Paul because the whole offense was a disaster. No one else was stepping up and they're playing two bigs that were making it tougher to find driving lanes and create offense and get good spacing on that end of the floor. There are a lot of different things going on and it led to Paul trying to do too much a lot of the time, I think, on offense. In the NIT, especially when he went off the floor and things were a little bit more open and there weren't two bigs on the floor, all of a sudden you didn't have that. The ball did move better and the offense was ran better. That wasn't like big X and, X and O scheming going on there. That was just how the guys were playing when Paul wasn't bogging down the offense as much. That's not to say Paul ruined this team or did anything and like they were better without him on the floor. That's just how it unfolded. So I, like... I don't pin that on Paul Scruggs the whole season or anything like that and say he cost them this year. But at the end of the year, the way things ended, the final few weeks, he was clearly struggling. He was clearly trying to do too much. It wasn't working. And on the flip side of that, once he went out, the offense did have more success as a result. And I think that was um, pretty obvious to anybody that was watching the NIT games. Yeah. And the other thing with the NIT, it just felt like every time like, like I said, just felt like every time Xavier needed a bucket, like they were confident in their ability to go out and get a bucket after a timeout, whatever it was. And Xavier had a lot of success in the regular season out of timeouts. Travis was always pretty good with that, but still on that last play of the game, it, it felt like a microcosm because even on, on that last play, that shot from Jack was maybe one of his toughest shots. I don't know. I don't want to say the season. That sounds way too dramatic, but like, that was not an easy shot off balance through contact in the middle of the lane where it kind of flings it up toward the basket and it goes in and it just felt like that. It always to me felt like that shot was going in. And it always to me felt like that shot from Texas A&M to win the game was going to go in and out. And that's, that's how it went down. It just, just felt to me like Xavier had a determination to win those games and to go out on a high note. And it, it was cool after the game, seeing the guys FaceTime and Paul Scruggs right away. I think it was Adam Kunkel went up and cut down a piece of the net for him and see how connected they all were with him and how badly they felt that he wasn't there as a part of the team. He, he wasn't there. He did not make the trip. He was not in New York. So they were all FaceTiming him after the games, everything like that. And, and uh, it, I, I thought it was, I, I know there was a lot of reservation, uh, myself included really when the team elected to play in the NIT, I thought just with the way the season had ended against uh, Butler, it just felt like maybe the right thing to do was to move into the off season. But at the same time you declined the NIT last year, at least the Butler game isn't the sour taste in your mouth to end the season. Even if it ends up being a loss to wh who, who would that have been in the set Florida in the second game, but they go out there and they write the ship and they win a few games and then they end up winning five games and they bring home a title. And all of a sudden with a new coach and everything else, the fan base is energized. The players are energized and it's a, it's a very different feeling and vibe around the team now than it was 25 days ago. It definitely was. And uh, I think the fact that they were able to win five games in a row is just impossible to believe with the way they ended the season, which like we said, it felt like they couldn't find a way to win any games, no matter what was happening. And the best part of all that is they didn't really get any better on the defensive end. 
They stunk defensively throughout most of the NIT and still kept finding ways to win. It was actually very much the team Travis had told us at the beginning of the season that he was going to have, which he always said, I'm not worried about offense. This team will find ways to score. We've got to be better on the defensive end. That didn't play out at all during the regular season. But finally in the NIT, we saw that team that was able to overcome their uh, their lack of defense or able to outscore teams. Now, all that being said, I think what a lot of fans lose sight of is this is what life is like when you play NIT level teams. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like if Xavier only had to play Butler and DePaul and Georgetown this year, they would have been a lot more successful in the Big East too. Those were the types of teams they were playing. Like the Texas A&M win was a nice win in the finals. There's no doubt about that. I'm not trying to discredit what they did, but. There is something to that. I asked this on the Skinny Podcast. I'd be curious to get your take. If you're, like, assigning credit on percentages, how much do you assign to the players, to Jonas, and to the level of competition that they were facing? Oh, man. Well, are you talking about just in the championship game or just overall in the NIT? Yeah, overall through the NIT run. Like, and I can give you mine if, 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 because I'm putting you on the spot here, because I've, I've already thought about this a little bit. No, no, let me, let me try and do this. Uh, let me, let me do this without hearing yours. So let's see. Cleveland State was 197, 59, 64, 78, 33. You're going through the Ken Xavier, Palm rankings of each team. Yeah, yeah. Xavier, Xavier improved seven spots from when they started to when they finished and they were the, okay. So I'll say, I'll say, uh, I'll say, let me, let me make sure I'm doing the math here. Right. I'll say, uh, 40, I'll say 40% to the teams. Uh, no, let's go a little higher. Let's say 50, 30, 20. 50% 50% to the teams, 30% to the players, and 20 to Jonas. Okay. So, What'd you give? Yeah, so that was actually, you were a little more on the uh, opposing teams, but I, I mean, I agree with that. I, I think I had said 40% where it was the level of competition not being as good. Um, 35 I would give to the players, and 25 I would give to Jonas. So that's like, I thought Jonas did a great job, but I also think okay. you don't have a chance at making that run if the players don't completely change how they're viewing them. Yeah. Like they completely had a, a mental shift there from the end of the regular season and even into that Butler game and the Big East tournament to the way they were handling themselves, carrying themselves, and feeling about themselves in the NIT. Um, so they definitely deserve a little bit more credit than, than Jonas, in my opinion, for that. And then all of it to me is more about who they were playing against. And that kind of leads yeah. me into the. I think the whole this using this as a springboard or this mattering and helping them going forward is like ridiculous to me. I don't I don't think it has any bearing on what happens next season. I don't think it has any type of springboard. It's not it's not going to be the same team for one, personnel wise. You're not going to have the same leaders, the same go to play. I just Jack Nunji will be back, your best player, so I mean that helps. But aside from that, I just don't really buy it. Each season is a new season and a new team. It presents its own challenges, your own issues. You're going to have an entirely new coach, likely going to be running a new system on both sides of the ball. Like to me, there's nothing about this that really carries over. Yeah. Uh, now let's move on, Rick, into the uh, into the player 
portal and the transfer portal and everything else about what this team might look like uh, going into next season. I'll let you just start us off with maybe what you're hearing or we know Dwan's uh, yeah, in the well, portal. That's where we start and, is Dwan's yeah. leaving. What's what's the impact yeah. of Dwan leaving? Yeah, so I, I tweeted this out. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. But in the year 2022, in this game of basketball, it is near impossible to play a fluid offense without a point guard that can at least be a threat from three. I, I don't even need you. If you're not a, a, a 45% three-point shooter, I mean, all right. But, like, maybe be a three-point shooter. Like, I mean, that's where I'm at. And Dwan made two threes this year, and his last three was the one that he threw into the basket at Villanova. That wasn't even – it was a pass. It was yeah. a, a, a pass into the post. Yeah. yeah, and it went in. That was the last three that he made this year in the first half at Villanova. So, to me, like under Sean Miller, you're going to want a point guard that can at least be some sort of a threat. And not that's not to take away from – Dewan and his athletic ability, you know, he put up some decent assist numbers at points this year. That's not to take away from all that, but from the style of the game that Sean Miller is going to want to play, I, I just, I didn't see, I didn't see Dewan fitting as a piece into that. Yeah. I think that that's the biggest thing is, especially when you're talking about guards that are under six foot two. Yeah. If you can't shoot at that size, it just makes you so limited and it makes every, I guess what I'm trying to say is there is definitely a world in which Dwan Odom can be a successful point guard at the high major level. In my opinion, like I can see that working out. I think he's a great locker room guy. I think his athleticism and his ability to get downhill can definitely help you, but you're requiring almost everything else around him to be perfect for that to happen. Like you need great spacing. You need some big time shooters around him. If you're under 6'2", as a guard, you've got to be able to shoot at least somewhat. you got to be a threat from out there. And to peel back the curtain a little bit, and I know people have made some comments about like things they've seen said to Dwan on social media and all that. He was told he's not allowed to shoot three-pointers this year after a certain point. After a few weeks in the season, he was, we don't want another three from you. So I think that is probably, you're seeing some people like, go, you know, go be you, all that type of stuff, like, that's where he felt really restricted. He was told, I'm not even allowed to shoot a three anymore at this point. It's such a bad shot for our offense. We don't want to waste any possessions on you firing up a three. So that's where that was at. That's why you didn't even see a three-pointer attempted the rest of the year, despite all the, the conversation about him working hard on a shot in the offseason. It was just flat out said, we're not wasting any more possessions on you trying those. So, yeah, yeah I just it's, it's a really hard way to win. And again, it's like, I think Dwan is a guy that has value left. I would definitely consider him in the transfer portal. If I was a team that was, a no, you know, a notch lower than Xavier, if I was like an A-10 team or if I was an AAC team, I would definitely take a hard look at, at Dwan. But I do think in the Big East, you look at all the other guards around there and it's just like, man, you got a guard that can't shoot at all. It really makes it hard to match up at times. Yeah. And the, and the other part of that was Dwan defensively was not the player that I expected him to be after two years in, in the program. You know, I don't know who that's on, whether that's on him or how it was ran in practice or how he was coached or whatever, but defensively he did not develop into the type of defender that I thought he would have been. Yeah. 
there was a list of schools. I can't find it right now, but there was a list of schools that got tweeted out earlier today of teams that Dewan had heard from already in the transfer portal. And it, it wasn't exactly the most uh, illustrious yeah, it, list of teams. I can't find Iona, it. Iona, Georgia, Georgia Southern, South Carolina, Duquesne, yeah. and Loyola Marymount. I mean, like, this is, the you know, 12 hours or 13 hours after he had entered the portal or something like that. Maybe 24. So, I mean, like, you know, I don't think that's the end of his recruitment and a side that no one else is going to offer. But, and let's, let's face it, I mean, jo- Jonas is now going down to Georgia State. That would seem to be a fairly logical place for him to end up if he's not going to get any higher offers than what we've seen so far. So he'll be fine. He'll find a place to go, and he can he can go back home if he wants. But, yeah, for Xavier, I don't think this is a loss that you're really worried about costing you. I mean, I guess, I guess here's the other side of that. If you're Xavier and you're just having to find a replacement-level guard for Dwan, even if you don't make a huge upgrade, do you really feel like it's going to be hard to replace what he was able to give you? Yeah. And the answer would be Did, no, not really. Have you heard anything, Rick, about Sean's impact on Dewan coming back or Jonas's impact of leaving or anything like that of of how this decision was made or Yeah, I've had it on the board anything. the whole the whole time. I mean, there's more details on the board, but yeah, he was never going to play for Sean Miller. That was told as soon as Sean was hired, it was told to me that, you know, Dewan will be entering the portal. But also Jonas Hayes, that's all part of it. Like, you know, Jonas not getting hired but also Sean getting hired and there's a history there with Kobe Simmons and, and Dwan's relationship. So it's all there on the message board. We've been talking about it. If you want the, the full backstory there. Outside of Dewan Odom, we have a pretty strong sense that Jack Nungy is going to come back, but outside of those two guys, Rick, uh, have you heard any other news, anything you want to share here? I know you have a lot on the message board, but anything on the podcast you want to share about uh, anything you're hearing with different guys on their decision, yes or no? Or No, I don't. Um, you know, the transfer portal thing is just hard to cover. One, because guys are making their own decisions. Like, every everyone's got – if you listen to all the people with sources that are on the message board and on Twitter, every player on Xavier's roster is both transferring and coming back this <laughs> offseason. So, like, that's the thing is you find out a lot of the guys don't even know what they're doing when you get into the offseason. And then, two – this transfer portal thing is just hard to cover in general, and it's much harder to cover when there's not a staff in place and decisions are going to be made based on how that all falls down. So, like I said on the message board at the beginning of the week in my Nuggets post, I didn't expect it to be a bunch of news right away. I think a lot of people thought like half the roster was going to enter the portal on Monday or something like that. That was never going to be the case. There was only one person upon initial meetings that told them, I'm not coming back. And that was Dwan. So everybody else, all the other rumors you've heard, none of those guys that have been rumored to be transferring for weeks and weeks said anything about transferring in their initial exit meeting with Sean. So that's not to say that other guys aren't leaving. There definitely will be, but it wasn't the way everybody had portrayed it for weeks and weeks that so-and-so is already out the door and he's told everyone he's leaving and that type of thing. Hasn't happened yet. So we'll continue to monitor that the rest of the week. I do expect, I, it's hard for me to believe there's not at least three more guys entering the portal from this roster. Okay. Uh, Do you have any timeline at all coaching wise? Like anything that you've heard, like how long this could take to fill the coaching staff from what you've heard or. No, but one thing you also got to remember is like we're entering an evaluation period in here, April, starting uh, this coming weekend. So you can also have guys out and about and 
working and watching players without it counting for one of your coaches out there recruiting, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you're only allowed a certain amount of, of uh, coaches out on the trail. There are certain restrictions when you're on a staff, what you can do, what you can't do in terms of contact and, and talking to recruits and their families and all that type of stuff. If you're not on a staff, there's a little bit more leeway there. So it could take a little long. They could know what they're going to do and it take a little bit longer to actually make the hire. We've seen that before. So um, I know everybody's anxious and they want all the news right now, but yeah, there's a possibility (laughs) that this stuff takes a couple more weeks to play out fully. Jordan Brooks, anything there? Yeah, I mean, obviously everyone's worried about Jordan Brooks because of Tyrell Ward. Um, with Jonas not coming back, I I would I do not think Xavier's getting Tyrell Ward, if we're being honest. Jor- Jordan Brooks is still in play, I would assume. But like I've talked about on the message board, I would assume that if you have Jordan Brooks on staff, you want someone recruiting the DMV area because that's where yeah. you know his strongest ties are. Not to say he doesn't have other connections, but yeah. So we'll, we'll see what happens there, but... Um, I think I think all of that's still very much in play. Got it. Uh, anything else before we move into a one last little bit here well, with the? With what would you say is Xavier's biggest need based on what we know? I mean, we're going to see more roster movement, but I don't know if that necessarily matters when you think about this team and and what we know is coming back. What what's in your opinion the biggest need for this team? Well. If I'm looking at a point guard right now, you have Desmond Claude. So are you handing the keys of the team over to him right away, coming in as a, as a starting freshman, and you want to build this thing from the ground up? Do you want him to take over from day one? Do you feel confident in that? I'm not sure if I do. So are you going to go out there into the portal and find somebody that you're confident in their in their ball handling and their ability to lead a team as a point guard? That that would a, a guard spot, a true guard type spot, because even if you have Adam Kunkel coming back, even if you have Colby Jones coming back, uh, you're, you're losing Nate Johnson, you're losing Paul Scruggs, you're losing Dewan Odom, you're losing a lot of ball handling on this team. Uh, so, and you haven't heard from Zach Fremantle yet whether he's going to stay or leave. So, I, I don't know the Fremantle news to me. I with Nunji, I think you're okay. Not like you can't afford another post player, but I, I would lean more toward wanting somebody that can shoot and be a uh, sound ball handler and be a guard type player more so than somebody down in the post, even if Zach Fremantle leaves. Yeah, I would be curious to know what Sean's take is on Colby Jones right now after watching him in the NIT and specifically after watching him play point guard for a, a yeah. lot of minutes there in the last two games. I would assume his plan is to not start Colby Jones at the point coming into this year. Yeah. But. So then, so then is it, is it Desmond Claude then if you don't get a transfer? I mean, look, he's been, he's been talking a lot about wanting to play multiple guards during his time off and all that. But we're also talking about a man that started Dante Jackson at point guard one year while he was the head coach at Xavier. So, I mean, if you're willing to start Dante Jackson, you're more than willing to start Colby Jones at point guard. I mean, he said in his introductory press conference in front of all the Xavier fans that Dante Jackson could not dribble. He said that during his introduction, if you remember. So, like, he played that man at point guard. I, I mean, like, I I'm not, I don't think Colby is his plan to start at the one, but I don't think it's an impossibility either. My thing is their biggest need is is a guy that can win one-on-one matchups and create his own shot off. Yes. I just don't think, one, they didn't have enough of that this year, period. But two, if you're losing 
Paul Scruggs, and you just have that hole in your team to begin with, I would, whether it's a point guard, a combo guard, or even a wing, if Colby is going to play a lot of point for you this year, in your opinion, that's fine. But to me, that's the biggest need is, is a guy that can create his own shot, that can win one-on-one matchups off the bounds and get you into some stuff because you just need someone that can create offense. I That's my biggest concern for this team going forward. And then the other thing I would say is they just need more shooting, period, regardless of position. Ideally, a four-man that could stretch the floor a little bit next to Jack would be great, I think. But to me, it's the biggest key is probably getting a point guard or combo guard that can create his own shot. How many times, Rick, this year did we say they don't have a playmaker that when you need a basket, when you need a bucket, when you need something one-on-one, you can go out and get it? That's what yeah. they need. Yeah, and and a lot of times I'm talking about that in a go-to role. Like, they didn't have a go-to offensive player. I'm even talking about now, like, not only do they not have a go-to offensive player, they still may not have that going into this year, but, like, they don't have a Paul Scruggs anymore either. As yeah. much as people complained about Paul Scruggs and his issues, there were still a lot of times where he was the only guy that was creating offense off the bounce and getting them into stuff, especially when they were making comebacks late in games if they had fallen behind and stuff like that. So a lot of people are trying to do the addition by subtraction thing with Paul leaving. Okay, there's some of that. He wasn't perfect this year, but he's. you also now have a major hole to make up in terms of someone handling the ball, someone creating off the bounce, someone can go get his own shot and win a one-on-one matchup. And I don't know where that comes from based on the guys we know are coming back. There's clearly going to have to be a roster overhaul. We knew that going into this offseason. It's going to be months before we know exactly what this team looks like going into the 2022-2023 season. And uh, again, to me, it's the biggest key here is add a guy who can create his own shot and score, and then after that, find as much shooting as you possibly can. I'll be interested next year to see how deep Sean elects to go in this team and you look at all these teams now and we talked about there was a pretty good post on the message board about how some of these teams that are in the you look at Villanova only going six deep and then having to really go five deep in the in that final four game but like a lot of these teams that you go six you go seven deep but if by the end of the year you're getting your your role-playing guys you're getting your seven guys that are set to go you're not looking at that ninth guy you know, it's coming off the bench, the fourth guy off the bench. And with a team like this for Xavier, where it's going to be a lot of portal guys, it's going to be a couple of freshmen, maybe three freshmen, and it's going to be a lot of new faces. I, to me, I, I don't really know what to expect depth wise next year, because maybe he, I, I could see it both ways. I could see him wanting to, I, I could see him trying to maybe do that seven deep type thing where, he has his guys, and here's what we're going to do this year. We're going to roll it out there, and we're going to try and, and roll with it with these seven guys. Or I could, in the beginning of the year, see him going a little deeper because he has so many fresh faces, and he doesn't necessarily have everything as panned out as he would in year three or four when it's he's recruited a whole class, and he knows exactly what he's getting in the transfer portal because he's mapped it out months in advance, everything like that. That's all part of it, right? Like, it. this is his philosophy in an ideal scenario. When you have your team in place and what you want to... You want to shrink your rotation, play your best seven. That's what he's been talking about. But absolutely, I mean, when you're putting together your first roster, one that may not be very good going into next year, if we're being honest, 
you're probably going to end up with a few more guys playing early on because you're trying to figure out ex- what you have exactly before you can even yeah. set on a top seven or eight rotation, something like that. And also, j- just in general, next year, it might not, there might not be a clear seven or eight guys. You, you might have to play a few more and figure this out as you go. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I know a lot of people are listening to the podcast and it's been great content because you have Sean talking about his philosophies and the things he's been thinking about in his time off. And that has been cool to have. Like, I'm the first to admit I've listened to just as much of you as you guys, and it's it's provided some great insights into how Sean is thinking about this and, and how he might want to change things. So I'm not saying there's no value in that, but I'm also saying he's speaking that from a, a bird's eye view of like in an ideal world, if I have what I want at my disposal, well, here's how I want to run things. It doesn't mean that's exactly how things are going to be immediately, and it's a hard line stance on everything. You know, I'm sure there will be times where Sean goes eight, nine, 10 deep early on next year. That that yeah. would not surprise me at all if he has the, the players to do it. So, there, And there is a ton of great Sean Miller content on YouTube, on Twitter, podcasts. He did a whole media tour in this last year that he's been out of coaching. I'm sure most of you, if not every one of you listening, knows that. But if anybody listening doesn't know that, if you just look at he did his whole podcast with his brother Archie. Uh, John Fanta hosted a lot, but... Jeff Goodman did it with him a few times on the field of 68. Uh, there were podcasts he was on. There's YouTube videos. He's, I mean, he is, he's done a whole media tour in the last year. So that if, if you are looking for Sean Miller content, there is plenty of it out there. If you go looking for it. So. Yeah, no, that has been good stuff. So I guess maybe the final thing here wrapping up would be, <laughs> we've seen, uh, uh, it's been posted on the message board by a few different people already. And it's all on social media right now. The two early preseason top 25 polls are coming out. Every media outlet has one now for some clicks. As soon as the season's over, you got to put out your top 25 for the following season. Xavier is getting included on a lot of these top 25 rankings, Paul. Your thoughts on Xavier being a top 25 preseason team? I didn't even think they would be close to the top 25. I didn't even think the fact that they were even in one of these polls was shocking to me and now as the day has gone on and i've been on twitter i don't want to say in there they're in everyone but they might be in everyone and why what 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 do you what basis besides sean miller and maybe that's what they're doing maybe they're saying sean miller instantly gives you a top 25 team maybe that's exactly what they're doing but you're losing paul scruggs you're losing nate johnson you're losing Dewan Odom, potentially losing a couple other big names. We don't know yet. You're bringing in two freshmen. You have no idea what you're going to get in the transfer portal yet. Your best assistant coach just left to take a head job. Your other assistant coach probably isn't going to come back. And your third assistant coach is Dante Jackson, who, as you talked about, you know, is, is just now getting his feet under him as a high major assistant, but has shown he's doing a good job but i'm just saying you have to replace all of that plus two coaches and in these way too early top 25s xavier is consistently all day been in the teens yeah. i i just don't I, I just don't see that at all and, and someone was like oh if uh Dwan odom was sticking around i would have had him five spots higher or whatever and it's like yeah so they're a top 15 team now i i don't I don't get that. I guess people are really drinking the Kool-Aid from the NIT win and using that as a springboard thing and combining that with Sean Miller. I don't know. I was worried 
with the addition of Sean Miller that I was going to have to temper Xavier fans' expectations. Like, the, the people with the, the blue-colored glasses on that are drunk on the Kool-Aid, that I was going to have to talk them down a little bit before the year of like, ah, uh, yeah, you might want to temper your expectations a little bit. I didn't know every national writer was going to be thinking the same exact thing as the most ardent <laughs> Xavier fans. Like, I, I don't get where this is coming from, to be quite honest. I don't. You got one all-biggies honorable mention guy in Jack Nungy coming back for next year, and that's... A top 25 team, your best shooters leaving, probably two two of your top three best shooters are leaving off of last year's team. Who creates and makes shots for this team next year? That's the, that's the thing I would love to ask these voters. Like, okay, Jack Nungy is pretty good. He's probably the leading scorer if you had to guess going to next year, but who's Xavier's best offensive player? Like, who is their guy that's going to create offense for them next year? Who's going to be the go-to guy on offense? You can't tell me. You have no idea. There's no way to know that. And yet they're a top 25 team. I don't know. Every Everyone is dealing with uncertainty, especially with the way the transfer portal works now. So I get it. It's hard to make a top 25 list with any team at this point of the year. And that's why it's kind of silly to do so. But Xavier is dealing with uncertainty even more so than almost anyone in terms of roster turnover and because of the coaching change. I, I just, it's wild to me that people are ranking them this high. I, I do not understand yeah. that at all. I, I didn't, I had no expectations of, I, my expectations for Xavier right now, sitting here on the night of April 5th, 2022, I, I don't want to say there's a easy world where Xavier doesn't make the tournament next year, but if you told me that Xavier doesn't make the NCAA tournament next year, I'm like, yeah, okay. That probably makes sense. Yeah. It, w- it would not be my expectation for them to be a tournament team next year. I'm not saying yeah. it's not possible. We have no idea what the roster is going to look like right now. But but, but that's but that's on, exactly what we're saying. Yeah, like we have no idea. 5th, uh, to me, they're not a tournament team next year, based on right now tonight, 10:33 p.m. April 5th. So I've reserved the right to change that 100. But yeah, right <laughs> now I would definitely not have them as a top 25 team, and I would not have them in my uh, bracketology for next season if we're if we're doing too early bracketology either. Yeah, so... I'll also say, that's one of the reasons that I hear a lot of people, and, and I even mentioned at the top of this podcast, I think it's a consideration right now for Xavier in terms of making this higher. In terms of assistant coaches, I think it's it's part of the process of maybe finding a guy that can take over the program and make it smooth if Sean is suspended for a more extended period than just you know a couple games. I wouldn't care about that at all, quite honestly. And the reason why is I don't even know if the roster is going to be any good. You might be playing in the next year's non-conference. You might not. It might be a 500 team for all we do. You know, I mean, I don't expect that. I imagine they'll. They'll. Mario's pretty good at this. They'll find a way to win during the non-conference next year. But like, we don't know that this team is gonna even be any good or be a tournament team. I wouldn't base any assistant coach hires that you have to deal with for the duration of your tenure or at least the next couple of years, based on the fact that he may or may not coach a couple of non-conference games next year when your roster might not be intact and and ready to really compete at this level yet so like i to me that is not a big concern i would not be worried about getting a guy in place that can take over the program for a handful of games if sean were to get a a, a more lengthy suspension than, than we're expecting but i have heard it's something that's being considered so we'll see how it all plays out again i just don't get the top 25 love to be clear before everybody kills us for totally taking the steam out of everybody's expectations for the year. Like, look at what Iowa state did. Like there is obviously a precedent here in the transfer portal for the ability to come in here, get some high level players 
under a coach like Sean Miller, which is why you went out and got him to be able to put this thing together and, and have a respectable season and make the NCAA tournament. That's absolutely not out of the question. But if, if we are sitting here in a vacuum on April 5th and you said, Paul, what are you looking at for next year? At the very least, it's not a top 25 team to start the season. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, I, like, because yeah. what are, what if you're picking the Big East, it's like, where does Xavier fit in there? I find it hard to believe you'd have them in the top four or five oh, preseason, yeah. right? And so what, you're going to have I, six? I wasn't going to you have six big yeah. East teams in the top 25 next year to start like find that hard <laughs> to believe. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't put Xavier in the top half of the big East to start the year. Agreed. Are you, are you putting, are you putting DePaul in the top half? I mean, there's been a lot of, rumors. Are they back? Uh, there's been a lot of rumors and rumblings about DePaul being back, Paul. I don't know if I should be the one to make that call, but nah. I think, you know, where we'll, I let stand. Am- we'll let America make that call. All right, uh, Rick, anything else? That's all I got. All right. Uh, recording schedule-wise, we won't be recording every month. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Rick, but I through this offseason, I think we'll probably record as time as and news as news and time allows. Yeah, and, and like, needed, yeah. like last year, I will, I will be doing some other things too. I did a couple of those like just conversations with different people. I'll do some of that to fill in the gaps a little bit, and maybe we'll be able to try out some new stuff too. I, it this is going to all be a work in progress in terms of what we can get from new staff members, things like that. I mean, if you remember when uh, Ben and Jonas first joined Travis's staff, I was able to get them both on a podcast and did something with them. So hopefully, you know, if we get new assistant coaches in, we might be able to, to get them on a podcast at some point, stuff like that. We'll, we'll work on that, but all that's uh remains to be seen. We just, I've never worked with Sean Miller before. You know, I've had one yeah. conversation with him now in my life, and that was at his introductory press conference. Um, Bomb and I got to talk to him one-on-one afterwards and, and did an, an interview, a sit-down, everything. So aside from that, I've never worked with Sean Miller. Uh, I know people who have. We've got some mutual friends, but aside from that, I, I, I don't know him. So it'll all be a work in progress in terms of that relationship and building that up and seeing what type of content we can get. I do also want to give a quick shout out to Adam uh, for his work with me last week in New York at Madison Square Garden. And also for the fact that after however many interviews he and I have done together before the championship game, he finally told me it's Baum, not Bomb. And I said, okay, I can roll with that. So after four years of knowing each other, he finally told me that. And I feel badly for having introduced him as that. So I will correct myself, Adam, it is Baum, not Bomb. Although A-Bomb does yeah. roll off the tongue. Yeah, it's like hard to not say A-Bomb. That's the problem. That's what I... Well, see, he made it very clear that that was his nickname forever yeah. and that everyone, he was okay with it. Yeah, I mean... I, I, and I didn't know any different. When we were at the end choir, everyone called him A-Bomb, so I... Yeah. Whatever. I don't know. I, right, I mean, I don't know. We might have just changed Bomb's last name on here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Adam. <laughs> uh, all right, everybody. Thanks for listening.